Well, thank you, Brandon, for those kind words. And um, it's a privilege to be here. We really enjoyed our last visit last year at this time, I think exactly a year ago. And um, we're um, glad to be back and to share again with you. A lot has happened in our lives in the last year. And I can see a lot has happened here um, as well. And so thankful for that. And as Brandon mentioned, um, at the uh, potluck um, afterwards, I'm going to share a little bit more. Oh, that's great. Thank you, Ken. I'm going to share more about our ministry and talk more about Africa and our, my last two trips over to Chad and Cameroon and, and future trips. Um, Susan and I just got our tickets for January, so we're uh, stepping out in faith and preparing for our next trip over. So we'll share more about that um, at the lunchtime. But what I'd like to do today, right now, is turn our attention to Revelation chapters 4 and 5. Um, when I was preparing to come, um, I was drawn in my thoughts to this passage and the, the praise, the praise of Christ around the throne. And it's such a, a moving passage. Because remember, as, as um, Brandon mentioned, John is on the island of Patmos. He's a prisoner. He's near the end of his life. He has every reason to be discouraged. But then he has this incredible vision. And he sees in Revelation 4 and 5 the th worship around the throne. And what I'd like for us to take away today is just the same worship on our lips and in our hearts. To, to really sink in this vision of worship around the throne. So let's turn to Revelation um, 4 and 5. And what we see in, this, in these chapters, really, uh, I'm focusing in on Revelation 5, 9, and 10, but you can't really look at that passage without looking at 4 as well. Because in the praise, um, we see John first sees the praise of God the Father on the throne, right? He sees the 24 elders and the, the living creatures, these mysterious looking creatures. They're praising God the Father, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And as they're praising God the Father, then the elders are also bringing their praise of God the Father. And it goes on uh, forever. They're eternally worshiping God the Father. But then there's this shift in chapter 5. It's as though John something catches his eye. He sees the, the scroll in the right hand of God the Father. And in chapter 5, as we read, um, he's looking at that scroll and the angel cries out, who is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals? And no one is worthy. There's silence. John is, begins to weep. And then he's rebuked by one of the elders who tells him, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And he looks and he sees not a lion, but the lamb, the lamb of God, who approaches God the Father, takes the scroll, and then heaven erupts in praise. But it's completely different praise from before. So we're going to dig into what they say in the praise. Uh, because in the praise around the throne, we're going to see the reasons for praising the Lamb. And I think it's really important as we dig into these reasons 
to have a clear, clearer understanding why we praise Christ. Because in these praises around the throne, there's beautiful summary of all that Christ accomplished. And so we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the, the three reasons we'll see in this passage for us to declare, worthy is the Lamb. Let me see. There we go. So there are three reasons that we'll look at in this passage. And it's important that we, we do this, that we stop ourselves and ask, why are we praising the Lord? Because we want our praise to flow from the truth that we know. Uh, sincere, honoring praise is based on truth, right? Sincere, honoring praise of your pastor is based on truthful recounting of what he actually did, right? And what you actually experienced with him. If someone walks up here and praises your pastor who you know, ne never met your pastor, you would say that's not meaningful. That's not sincere. And in the same way, we have to continually fill our hearts with the truth that leads to true, sincere, God-honoring praise. A few years ago at Grace Community Church in the evening service, they sang a, a, a praise song that I, was new to me. This is what happens when you're a missionary. You know, you go, you're overseas, you come back, and all the praise songs are new. And so they sang Agnus Dei. That's a Latin for Lamb of God uh, by Michael W. Smith. You probably have heard this for years. It was new to me. I loved it. Beautiful song. Uh, very simple, um, simple song. Just a few phrases. Uh, but every one of those phrases comes straight from Revelation. And he weaved them together. You know, hallelujah, Lord God Almighty reigns, worthy is the Lamb. You know, it's all from Revelation. Beautifully weaved together. And I went home singing that. But then, that led me to Revelation. I started studying it and I appreciated that song more and more. And so we want the truth from Scripture to be the base and support of our praise. So what are the truths? Why are the reasons that they're declaring worthy is the Lamb? Well, let's look at, there's three that we're going to look at. And with each one, we're going to go deeper. So the third one, we're actually going to unpack a lot more than the first one. But we'll start with the fact that he has conquered by his death, by his sacrificial death. We'll see that in the praise that's offered around the throne and in um, what the elders say about him. Then we'll turn to the fact that he is exalted at the right hand of God the Father. And we'll see that no one says Christ is exalted, the Lamb is exalted. But everything that happens and what Christ does and how they respond in praise, it all shows that He is exalted at the right hand of God the Father. And then we'll turn to the fact that He's building His church from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And we'll, dig, we'll burrow down in that one because I think there's so much... Um, there's so much truth in that that has implications even for today that it's worth unpacking that. So let's look first at the, at the first of these three reasons that he has conquered by his sacrificial death. So remember at the beginning of chapter 5, um, John sees the scroll. Uh, the angel announces who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal and no one answers. And then Christ comes and as right before Christ comes, remember John is weeping and the, the elder rebukes him. And what does the elder say? He says, the root of David has conquered. 
the root of David, the lamb of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So there he lays it out very clearly. Why is Christ worthy of all the praise? Why is he worthy to open the scroll? Because he conquered. In what way did he conquer? Well, as the 24 elders and the four living creatures are praising Christ, they say, you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God. So immediately they're referring to his death. So Christ conquered by his death. And this idea of Christ conquering isn't new to, um, to the elder when he says this to John. In fact, John already penned this earlier in the book when um, Jesus directed John to write letters to the seven churches. One of the letters, the letter to the church in Laodicea in chapter 3, um, has this statement that Jesus directed John to write. So John writes in Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, he's referring to the believers in Laodicea, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So John knows that Christ has conquered. Um, the elder declares that he has conquered and so he is worthy. And now he's be, they're declaring in their praise that he's worthy for he was slain. He is a lamb who was slain. And so we pull those together. We see Christ is worthy because he's conquered. How has he conquered? Through his death. So he is worthy because he has conquered through his sacrificial death. And he's worthy then for even more than that. He's worthy because he's exalted at the right hand of God the Father. So when Christ appears, the way he's described, very descriptive apocalyptic language shows that he is exalted. Look at verse 4 of chapter 5. Sorry, verse 6. Look at how he's described. He sees a lamb standing as though it, it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So this is, this is classic apocalyptic language. Seven crowns. What does that mean? Seven is the number of perfection or completion in, in Revelation. So he has perfect or complete what? He has perfect and complete power because the horn is the symbol of power. So... Here Christ is presented with as having perfect and complete power and authority. And it says the seven eyes. And then immediately John explains that. The seven eyes which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So here Christ is not only does he have complete and perfect power and authority, but he has the authority to send out the Holy Spirit to the church. And notice it mentions seven eyes in chapter 4, too. I was, I was struck by this. I hadn't really thought about this before. But in chapter 4, when it describes the throne, it says there are seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Think about that. So Christ also has the seven uh, spirits, the Holy Spirit. Just as God the Father on the throne has the Holy Spirit, um, Christ has the Holy Spirit. He's sending it out. So these, these, this imagery 
shows his exalted position. But it's more than just the imagery that, that describes him. It's also what he does at the throne. So where does he appear? He appears at the throne. And what does he do at the throne? He actually takes the scroll. So Christ, it says, um, it says that he went and took the scroll, verse 7. And it, says, it repeats it in verse eight, 8. And when he had taken the scroll. Now remember, no one takes anything from God, right? You don't sneak up on God the Father on the throne and just take something. The fact that he took it is significant. That shows his exalted position. This is God the Son with God the Father. And he takes the scroll. And it's not his idea to take the scroll either. He's been summoned. When the angel cries out, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Uh, that is God the Father speaking through his herald, the angel, inviting Christ to come. Because God had decided it's time for the scroll to be opened, the seals to be broken, and for the tribulation to start. We'll see that in chapter 6, that the tribulation then begins with the opening of the seals. And so, the fact that Christ is there at the throne and takes the scroll shows His exalted position. And then the worship that, that happens, that breaks out as soon as He takes the scroll, that worship is like a picture. It's like a mirror of the worship of the God the Father in chapter 4. Note that the uh, 24 elders and the four living creatures in verse 9, they cry out, Worthy are you. Now, in verse 11 of chapter 4, they said the same thing to God the Father. Worthy are you, O Lord and God. So they're, with the same words and expressions, they're worshiping uh, Jesus. Worthy are you. And what is he worthy of? If we look down in verse 12, they say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So as the angels are worshiping Christ, they're using the exact same language that they used to worship God the Father earlier when they, they said in verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. And then if um, there's any question that God the Father and God the Son aren't equal in praise look at the praise that's offered by all every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea in verse 13 they say to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever so they are essentially putting god the father and god the son on the same level they're equally worthy of the same praise and so that shows the exalted position of Christ. And finally, the four living creatures say, Amen, and they fall down and continue to worship. So when we compare this worship with the worship in chapter 4, we see that Christ is equally exalted. It's, they're worshiping um, God the Father and God the Son in the same way. And so we see that Christ is exalted. And during his earthly ministry, Jesus spoke of his coming exaltation, and the apostles also wrote about it in Philippians 2, uh, chapter Philippians 2, 8 through 10. 
the Apostle Paul explains how Jesus was exalted in these terms. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God was highly therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So why is Jesus worthy of all praise and glory and honor? By his death, um, he conquered. He conquered by a sacrificial death and he is exalted at the right hand of God the Father. And then there's a third reason that he is building his church. He is building his church from every people, um, every tribe and language and people and nation. So let's look, we're going to focus in on the praise that's offered in, in verse 9 and 10. And I said he is building, because I'm speaking from our perspective. But notice in the praise of heaven here, it's all in the past tense. Um, except for one thing, uh, they shall reign on the earth in verse, at the very end in verse 10. We'll get to that in a second. But everything that Christ has done in this praise is in the past tense because He has accomplished everything. And He's at the end of the, the church age and about to start the tribulation. So He has built His church. But from our perspective, He's building it. And what is He doing um, as He is building His church? What is He being praised uh, for? They mention three things in this, in this section. So they mention first that He ransomed them, the church, the redeemed, uh, by His blood for God. And then they mention that He made them a kingdom and priests to God. And then also He mentions that He ransomed them from every tribe and language and people and nation. So that's the list there. What did the Lamb accomplish? What is He being praised for um, in verse 9 and 10? So these are the three things that He has accomplished. So He's ransomed a people for God by His blood, made them a kingdom and priests, and He has ransomed them from every tribe and language and people and nation. So let's look at each of these. So He's ransomed them by His blood. So this... We're very familiar with this, that Christ came to die to redeem a people for God. He spoke about this very often during His earthly ministry. One example is in Matthew chapter 20. You, write, you might remember that James and John, the sons of Zebedee and their mother, had a, a plan. They were going to approach Jesus and secure the two top positions in the new government, right? the new kingdom that was coming. And Jesus told them that he didn't have the authority to give them that position, those positions. And then, of course, the other disciples got upset with James and John for attempting to get to the front of the line, as it were, right? In Matthew chapter 20. So this is what Jesus said to them in uh, verses 26 through 28 as he's rebuking them and trying to get them to understand the right priorities in the kingdom. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. 
even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. So Jesus came to give His life as a ransom for many, and He succeeded. And the praise that He receives in heaven, they say, you ransomed people for God by your blood. And He has made them a kingdom and priests to God as well. He succeeds in this. He is building up His people, the church, and making them into a kingdom. So Jesus as King, He's reigning over a spiritual kingdom. And He has brought us, His church, into His spiritual kingdom, reigning in our lives and through us. But there's also an earthly kingdom, a millennial kingdom that's coming. If you look at the very last line in verse 10, and they shall reign on the earth. I mentioned earlier, that's the only thing not complete in this praise. The only thing not in the past tense. They shall reign on the earth. As they're at the the cusp of the tribulation beginning, they're looking forward to the millennial kingdom in chapter 20. And at that time, those who Christ has redeemed will reign on the earth. And Jesus is also our high priest. And He has made His church priest to God. And the idea that we are a kingdom and that we are priests to God is not new here. John actually writes about it in the very first chapter of the book. In Revelation 1, verse 6, John wrote that Jesus made us a kingdom, priest to His God and Father. And Peter also mentions this. In 1 Peter chapter 2, um, Peter writes that we are a priesthood, a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then he adds in verse 9 of chapter 2 that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And Peter as he was penning those words, um, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was even pulling from something earlier, what Moses had written in Exodus 19.6. In Exodus 19.6, Moses is recording what God declared about the the people of Israel, the Israelites. Um, He wrote that they were to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now think about the people of Israel. How well did they succeed at being a kingdom of priests and a holy nation? Not too well. But it's incredible to see that in Christ, God finally has a kingdom of priests and a holy nation in the church. And Christ accomplishes um, accomplishes that for God the Father. And so let's look now at the third thing um, that Christ accomplished. The, in the praise of the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they unpack even further who. Who are the people that Christ has redeemed? And they say that they are from every tribe and language and people and nation. And this is a fascinating phrase because if you look through the New Testament, you don't find this. You don't find in the New Testament a statement that Jesus is going to redeem from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
but we have it here. So what does it mean? What are these terms? What is a tribe? We usually don't talk about tribes that very much. Um, no one introduced me in their tribe this morning. Um, but if you go to the Old Testament, tribes were very important. Uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, we remember them. Um, in Judges, for example, the last three chapter, chapters of, of Judges, remember how they always almost killed out the entire tribe of Benjamin. Why? Because one man in the tribe of Benjamin um, committed such a heinous act that the other tribes of Israel wanted to punish them. And then the tribe of Benjamin, their sense of identity as a tribe was so strong that they would rather all die than to give up one of their brothers. So at that time, the tribe was very important. What was a tribe? It was a group of people with a common ancestor. So the Benjamites are all descendants of Benjamin. The tribe of Judah, they're all descendants of Judah. And they have a common identity um, and often a single language, very cohesive group. And they're all willing, in the case of the tribe of Benjamin, they'd all rather die than to give up one of their own to the other tribes of Israel. And then um, we have tribe. That's perhaps the smallest and most basic cultural grouping of people. And then we have nations. So nation is just a larger cultural group. What happens is if, some, if your tribe grows and you defeat other tribes and, and bring them into your group, all of a sudden you become a nation. You're no longer all descendants of one person. You've become a nation. So even in the case of Israel, we read in Joshua 3.17 that as the 12 tribes are crossing the Jordan into the promised land, they're going to attack Jericho. There's a, a reference to them and it says all the nation crossed over the river. So now they're a nation. Why are they a nation? Well, it's 12 tribes, but they've got other groups with them. They're a larger. They're a larger unit. So you have tribes, you have nations, you have people. Every people. Now in the New Testament, the term people is a little broader term. It's In a lot of passages, it's similar to nation. Nation and people. So for example, Caiaphas, when he's giving a justification for uh, crucifying Christ, he says in John 11.50, Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So he's putting a parallel there. He's saying the people, the whole nation. So that term is being used synonymously. It's essentially the same term. People, nation. But sometimes people is used for other groupings. So for example, in Luke 121, uh, Zechariah is in the temple. Remember, he goes in and he's delayed because he sees the angel and the people outside are waiting for him, wondering what he's, what he's doing. So Luke 121, it says, and the people are waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. So that's the same word. The people are waiting. The same word in Revelation 5.9 for people. So these are different groupings of, of mankind. And you have the fourth one, language, which is the one we're probably most familiar with. We learn languages. We speak a language. You major in a language at college. You go overseas and you wish you had studied that language in college. And so languages. 
So these are four different ways that you can group humanity. And, and whichever way you group it, Christ has, has ransomed a people from them. And I mentioned that to understand those four terms and why they're grouped together, you have to, you, you, we don't find that in the New, T- New Testament. You actually have to go back to Daniel, the book of Daniel, to see the context behind what John is writing. So let's go to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is recording different visions that he has. He calls them visions in the night. He says he's terrified by these visions he's receiving. He's seeing visions of the future and what's going to happen. And he sees different creatures coming out of the sea. Um, And then in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, we'll look at 9 and 10. He sees a vision of the throne room of God. This is going to look, sound similar. There are certain similarities between this and what we see in uh, Revelation 4 and 5. So Dan, uh, Daniel 7, 9 and 10. As I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. The stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So this is very much like Revelation 4 and 5, the throne room of God, God on the throne. The Ancient of Days is God the Father on the throne, about to execute judgment. And Let's move down to verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So, this should sound familiar. This this vision presents the coming Messiah. He's described as one like a son of man. And he is coming before the Ancient of Days. And he's going to receive a kingdom. And all peoples, nations, and languages will serve him. So this is the, the vision that stands behind John's vision. And what does it mean here that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him? Well, if you look through the book of Daniel, this phrase, peoples, nations, and languages, occurs quite often. So, for example, in chapter 3, you remember Nebuchadnezzar builds the golden idol on the plain of Dura. And he brings um, many officials, a large number of government officials, probably hundreds or thousands and they're there on the plains of Dura, and they're supposed to fall down and worship. And the herald addresses them on behalf of the king, and he cries out in verse 4, O peoples, nations, languages. And then in chapter 6, King Darius, 
Remember, he's amazed that, that Daniel survives the lion's, the lion's den. And so he makes a decree. In Daniel 6, verses 25-26, through 26, uh, we read, Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Quote, peace be unto peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my dominion, all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. So when the kings, when their officials, when they referred to their, their subjects and their empires, what did they how did they address them? Peoples, nations, languages. And why um, why would they address them? peoples, nations, and languages? Well, because they had conquered vast empires and their empires were made up of many different peoples or ethnic groups, nations, different political groups that they had conquered, speaking many different languages. And let me share with you one more passage from the book of Esther. You remember in the book of Esther, you have a man, Haman, who set on destroying the Jews. And he wants to destroy them because of one man, Mordecai, who offended him. And so we know that Haman's plan was um, undone through Haman and Esther. And then um, the king, ah Ahasuerus, he had a dilemma. You know, like, how am I supposed to protect the Jews? Because Haman directed him to sign an edict to have the Jews destroyed and his edict can't be undone. Well, Mordecai has a solution. Mordecai has a new edict he's supposed to sign and send it out, which will allow the Jews to protect themselves. So listen to what they say in Esther 8, verse 9. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. So this is fascinating. So the king had a group of scribes, and they were tasked to continually translate all of his edicts so that as they went out to his empire, they could be read by the different, in the different provinces. He even had Jewish scribes who would translate into Hebrew. And it says there um, to the Jews in their script and their language. So they were aware that different languages had different scripts, and you had to know the scripts so you could actually translate and write in these languages. And so, as soon as Haman, uh, as soon as Mordecai's edict was written and the king approved it, all these scribes had to go to work transcribing it, writing it, and then sending it out. Why all this work? Because the Persians understood that to effectively minister their empire, they had to communicate to all the groups that they had subjugated and the most effective way to communicate to all the groups that they had subjugated was to translate it and send it out in their, in their languages. And so we see then that when the rulers of these empires use this expression, peoples, nations, and languages, 
They were referring to the real peoples they'd conquered, the real nations they'd conquered, the languages that they spoke. And so that's the backdrop then to what John is seeing in Revelation 5.9. And so when we take John, Daniel's vision together with John's vision, what do we see? We see that the greatness of Christ is revealed and that He reigns over a kingdom that draws from every part of humanity, from every tribe, every language, every people and nation. And He reigns over a kingdom that He purchased by His own blood for the glory of God the Father. Now there's one more passage um, we should look at to get the fullest view of what Christ has accomplished. So let's turn even further back to Genesis. Genesis chapter chapters 10 and 11. So Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel. I'm sure you're familiar with the Tower of Babel. How Noah's descendants, um, they were commanded, well actually God commanded Noah and his sons um, after they left the ark, God commanded them to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And so they were fruitful. They were multiplied. They were fruitful, they did multiply, and they filled the plain of Shinar, not the earth. They moved down to Mesopotamia, the plain of Shinar, and they began to settle the plain of Shinar. And in Genesis chapter 11, we learn that some of them even wanted to build a city and a tower. They wanted to make a name for themselves, and they say very specifically they don't want to be scattered. They didn't want to be scattered. That, that's a very telling statement. Because that shows they knew that they were supposed to be filling the earth and they didn't want to do it. And of course, God is patient. He allowed them for a time to um, act out their rebellious desires and then God comes down and confuses their language and then scatters them. And after God scatters them, where do they go? What do they do? What's the rest of the story? Well, the rest of the story is in chapter 10. So if you turn back to chapter 10, we have what's called the table of nations, the descendants of Noah. So we have a genealogy in chapter 10 that shows where the, everyone went after they were scattered. It's as though after chapter 10, um, the Holy Spirit was directing Moses and wanted to make it clear that chapter 10 wasn't an act of obedience. This was God's um, work that He did to correct them because they didn't want to scatter. But in chapter 10, we have a list according to the three sons of, of their descendants and where they went. And you see in chapter 10 in verse uh, 5, a little summary there. From these, the coastline people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. It's a little summary for the descendants of Japheth. And then we have the descendants of Ham. And there's a little summary for the descendants of Ham in verse 20. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Sound a little similar? We heard something like that before. And then we go down to the section on the Shem. And if you move all the way down to verse 31, it has a similar summary statement. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, 
their lands, and their nations. So, what we see here is that God scattered one people at Babel, and then Christ in Revelation 5.9 is praised because He redeemed from the scattered one people by, for God by His death on the cross. So God scattered one people at Babel and the Lamb redeemed one people for God from all those who had scattered. So God scattered because of human disobedience and Christ gathered through His obedience. And all for the glory of God the Father. And so that brings all of Scripture together. The, the scattering, the rebellion, it ends with Christ gathering and creating a people for God who will praise Him and worship Him eternally around the throne. Amen. That's right. What a Savior. He brings it all together. So what are, what are the um, implications of this? I'll give you three that strike me as a translator. Because this has implications for every language. When he says he's redeemed a people from every language, um, this has implications for gospel ministry. We're, we proclaim the gospel in, to every group in their language. We want them to understand that we proclaim it to them in their language. And then we need to help them disciple to grow in their faith in their language. Teach them to share their faith in their language. We need to um, equip them to minister in their language. And then finally, if we really want the church to be established, they need the Scriptures in their language. Now, I've never had a person come to me and say, no, 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 we don't proclaim the Gospel to people in their own language. No, 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 no. No one's ever said that. No one's ever said, oh, they don't need to know how to share the Gospel with their neighbors in their own language. Everyone agrees with that. But, I do have people quite regularly come and say, but do they really need a Bible in their own language? And I, I, that's, not a, I'm, you know, that's not too bad of a question because it is, I was telling a brother earlier, it's, a 20, it's an 18-year commitment to translate the Bible into a language. That's the average. 18 years. So, do we really need to do it? Let's do, give them a crash course in French and give them a French Bible, or a crash course in English, and give them an English Bible. That doesn't take 18 years, does it, to teach them English? Well, if you want them to have a Bible, a reference tool, just a book, sure. Give them a crash course in French or English, or whatever world lang major world language is spoken there. But if you want to see the church firmly established in a group, and growing, and teaching and preaching and reading the Scriptures, then you need to translate. In 1992, I went to northern Cameroon and met a missionary couple there, uh, Bob and Yasmin, and they were telling me about their ministry there with the Karong people. They went to the Karong people, and there were already churches there. On Sundays, Karong would come and praise God and worship Christ. They were excited um, they had always believed, even as animistic um, people before the Gospel came, they always believed there was a Creator God. They always knew they lived in disobedience to God and they would be punished. And they were trying to find different ways to appease God. 
And there was also the spirits they tried to appease. And they practiced traditional African religion, is the term, technical term for it. So when the first missionaries came and shared the gospel with them, they were eager to put their faith in Christ and be right with God. And they had an expression. They wanted to appease God. They wanted to um, cool the heart of God. They were very much aware that God was a God of wrath who would judge them. And so they immediately, you know, they accepted that Christ died so they could appease God, satisfy His wrath. But there was a problem. That's what they thought it was all about. They didn't actually understand forgiveness. So every Sunday you went to church and you gave an offering to continue to appease God's wrath. And, you know, if you're appeasing God's wrath with your offering and with what Christ did on the cross, why do you need to stop sinning? You can sin all the more because you can always appease God. They didn't understand repentance and the change to life and forgiveness. And so Bob and Yasmin, they, as they learned the language and the culture and they started to understand how Christians were really thinking, they realized this is not the church we thought. These are not the, the they, they need sound doctrine. And so how did that happen? It was through translating the scriptures and teaching them the scriptures. And so just a couple years ago, um, Bob Olfers uh, finally had the New Testament finished and um, he had a, we even were able to help a little bit. He was trying to get one Bible at least, one New Testament at least, to every Karang chapel or little assembly so that they could faithfully read God's Word and preach it and teach it. Because he knew very well if he wanted the Karang to stay grounded in the faith, they needed the Word of God in their language. And even with um, the Kotoko, I'll share more about this at lunch, even as I'm... Um, I, I wrote a gospel tract to share about forgiveness. And I quickly realized their concept of forgiveness is not the biblical concept. Their concept of, of forgiveness is very narrow. It's more like a transactional. Um, God does not count one thing you did against you. But he can, can count everything else you did. So it's not the, the beautiful, rich forgiveness that we have in Christ. And so whatever group the gospel goes to, some faithful servant has to sit down and accurately, faithfully teach the gospel in that context and begin translating it and find those concepts that are there and fill them with the right biblical truth. Or in some cases, you have to bring in a whole new idea and teach it because over the millennia since Babel, they've rejected the truth and forgotten the truths of God. And so someone has to go. So let's return to the throne room of God. Uh, Revelation 5. So what did Christ accomplish? Why is He worthy of all praise and glory and honor? What should we take away that would uh, bolster our worship of Him? Well, we saw there were three things. He conquered by a sacrificial death. He is building His church. And he is exalted at the right hand of God the Father. And we experience each day how he is building his church. Because he is working in our lives, right? We see him working in our lives. We see him working in our families, in our church, in our, our community, around the world. We see him working. He is building his church. 
And so how should we live in light of these things? We should be praising Him. Amen? Praising Him all the more. He is worthy of all praise. And that praise should flow into proclamation. We should be declaring His greatness near and far. And our praise and proclamation then flow into our service. Whatever the Lord has given us to do, we have hope, we have joy in that because He has conquered. He is triumphant. And His purposes will be accomplished. And so we can join the heavenly hosts and say, worthy is the Lamb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that we can come together as brothers and sisters around Your Word. Thank You for this incredible vision of Your triumph. Heavenly Father, You are on the throne. And Lord Jesus, You have conquered. And Holy Spirit, You are in our midst. You've been sent out to the ends of the earth. Give us strength, Lord, to live in light of these truths. Help us to continually praise You and remember all that You've done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.